So, David, I'm curious, what was your first thought when you saw the news that Alexei Navalny had died? No, I guess was the first thought. Um, But then, of course. For so many of us who followed Navalny's career, this was absolutely shocking, but not the least bit surprising. David Herzenhorn is the Russia, Ukraine, and Eastern Europe editor at The Post. For over a decade, he has covered the career of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny himself had predicted that there was a very good chance that he would be killed in prison. He was asked many, many times, why are you still alive? To the point where the question annoyed him. Uh, And in fact, he talked about not wanting to dwell on the risks because it could be paralyzing. But at the same time, it was sort of absurd that he didn't quite grasp just how real the threat to his life was. The announcement of Navalny's death in a Siberian penal colony came on Friday. In the days since, officials around the world have been blaming his death on Russian President Vladimir Putin. According to Navalny's spokeswoman, local investigators have refused to hand over the body to his family. Navalny's team believes that authorities are delaying the release of the body, quote, to hide the traces of the murder. Today, Navalny's mother, Ludmila Navalnaya, stood outside the prison where her son died, and she asked Putin to return her son's body to her. And she makes then a direct appeal. I'm appealing to you, Vladimir Putin. She says, let me finally see my son. Then she says, I demand that Alexei's body be immediately released so that I can bury him decently. She wants his body back. Just an extraordinary thing. Navalny was Putin's loudest critic and attracted attention in and out of Russia. For more than a decade, he worked to expose corruption and abuse of power by Putin and his allies. These are people who are trying to steal my country, and I strongly disagree with it. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a kind of speechless person right now. I'm not going to keep silent. David says that for many Russians, Navalny was the hope for a democratic future. Certainly that's what he talked about. That's what he wanted. Uh, He thought that if he was ever given the chance to run in a free and fair election, that he had a good shot of defeating Vladimir Putin. But more than anything, what he wanted was to leave his children a democratic, free country to live in. There's an old saying that Russia without corruption isn't Russia. Uh, And in fact, Navalny just didn't buy that. He really believed that there was a chance for Russia to be very different. And this moment for many people is about any hope of that being dashed. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, February 20th. David is the author of the book, The Dissident, Alexei Navalny, Profile of a Political Prisoner. And today, I'm talking with him about the ramifications of Navalny's death and what Russia's future might look like without him. So, 
David, just to catch us up on the news from the last few days, um, we heard on Friday uh, from prison officials in Russia that Navalny had died. Um, he had been imprisoned in a prison colony just above the Arctic Circle. Um, can you walk us through what we know actually happened to him, how he died? So this was a dramatic series of events. And one of the more remarkable aspects of it is that Russian prison officials were actually releasing any information and not only releasing information, but doing it in quite a timely fashion. I mean, literally minutes uh, seem to have passed between um, when Navalny collapsed and they said he went for a walk and he wasn't feeling well, he collapsed and they weren't able to revive him and he was dead. Even more dramatically, his wife, Yulia Navalnaya, was in uh, Germany, in Munich, at the Munich Security Conference. This is the premier security and defense conference. And she actually got up, it makes this dramatic public appearance, where she says she doesn't even know whether to believe the statements that she's hearing, that her husband is dead. But if so... You know, Putin must be held accountable. Just a remarkable thing. You can imagine her and, uh, and their two children learning about this, you know, at the same time all the rest of us are. I saw that the official cause of death, or at least in the announcement so far from Russia, was a pulmonary embolism. Obviously, a lot of people are questioning whether that is the case. At this point, is it safe to say that Navalny was killed, that this was not just a natural cause of death? And, and what evidence is there that this could have been a murder? So they've also cited sudden death syndrome, and they intend to keep the body uh, for another two weeks, it seems, uh, to do further investigations. Uh, if, in fact, it was natural causes, you would think, why not release the body right away? Uh, quite unusual to have a need for weeks of investigation if the determination is that he died of natural causes. There, there is every reason to think this is extremely suspicious. The day before, there was a video linked to a court proceeding. This is how his court proceedings take place now, where he's on video and the judge and, and other court officers are on a video link. And there's Navalny seemingly in good health, as good health as we've seen him in these recent years, in good spirits, joking with them about needing more uh, pocket hmm. change, essentially more money on his account in the prison and asking the judge with his big salary uh, to transfer some money um, to him and the uh the officers in the detention centers should chip in as well. And you can see him getting smiles out of them. I mean, this was part of Navalny's um, success as a political activist, that he was just so funny. And because his death was so sudden and because you have people around the world who are basically blaming this on the Kremlin, I mean, have has Russia had any response? Has Putin acknowledged publicly these accusations that this was a form of state-sponsored murder? So Putin has made a point of never even uttering Navalny's name, and he has not even to now addressed his death at all. Uh, it's quite striking given that uh, the Kremlin typically, it sounds old-fashioned, will issue a telegram from Putin of condolences to almost any public figure who has died, to their um, family members. And Putin has said absolutely nothing. His spokesman, uh, Dmitry Peskov, has reacted very angrily to the accusations against the Kremlin and against the president, calling them boorish and out of place, inappropriate, uh, dismissing this, insisting that there is an investigation underway and that no uh, information is known. But in fact, we do know that Alexei Navalny would be alive if he was not thrown in prison, given a bunch of sentences in cases that were trumped up 
clearly for political retribution. The only thing extreme about Navalny is that he wanted you know, Russia to be a democratic country. And so if not for him being in that prison, and it wasn't the first one, he'd been moved from prison colony to prison colony, there is no question Alexei Navalny would be alive. So all in all, there's no doubt that the Russian state is responsible for his death. Now, did they kill him in the instant? That's certainly what his wife and his team are alleging. And based on the poisoning of him in 2020, there's every reason to believe that those uh, suspicions have validity. David, you talked about the reaction from Navalny's wife, um, blaming this on Putin, um, talking about how she is going to take up the mantle for what her husband was fighting for. Um, Also, uh, Navalny's mom asking for his body back, you know, begging uh, for his body to be released. But I'm curious, what have been some of the other reactions that we've heard internationally in the days since this news came out? So uh, certainly widespread condemnation right? Uh, President Biden has said that he holds uh, Putin responsible. Russian authorities are going to tell their own story. But make no mistake, make no mistake, Putin is responsible for Navalny's death. Putin is responsible. Certainly there have been uh, calls for accountability from other world leaders. And it's interesting because I'm fairly certain that Navalny himself would have been absolutely livid about those calls of accountability from these world leaders because of the sheer hypocrisy. He had warned them for so long of who Putin was and what Putin was capable of and had asked them to do more, to step up, to push harder sanctions, warning them, you know, even after the the war had started that they had to do more. And they never listened. And what might the U.S. do about this death? Well, it's unclear that the U.S. can do anything. Uh, Virtually every sanction or export control possible has been employed in hopes of stopping the war in Ukraine, and it hasn't worked. So it really does seem that the West is running out of options here, other than maybe taking some more forceful steps against Russia's war. Certainly, uh, folks have pointed to Congress, where aid for Ukraine has stalled as the first step that Republicans should stop obstructing that aid package, $60 billion plus that President Biden has proposed, and get that money to Ukraine as quickly as possible. But there is a real question about how to continue supporting the Russian opposition in exile. But accountability for Putin and for Navalny's death seems elusive. And do you have a sense of how Russians have responded to this? We know that Hundreds of Russians have come out uh, in cities all across the country to lay flowers and pay respects, uh, which sounds like a simple thing, but actually is a hugely brave act in wartime Russia. Uh, Hundreds of them have also been arrested in the process. Uh, As the days have gone by, the police have eased up a bit and seem to be content at the moment, just sort of moving people along, allowing them to place a flower or spend a moment at one of these memorials in front of the portraits that have been put up of Navalny and then move on. But for anyone to go out to do any kind of public protest or make any kind of public gesture like this in wartime Russia really is quite brave because people are being arrested and thrown in jail for the littlest things. I mean, they've gone after school children for, you know, art drawings uh, in favor of peace, Mm. Uh, gone after parents whose kids have done that. So among supporters, clearly there there is an outpouring of emotion for Uh, Navalny's family and for the hopes for democracy that he represented that now seem to have been crushed. Um, A lot of Russia, of course, may be ambivalent. 
may see it as, as a very small development. Certainly in Ukraine, where the war continues, uh, the loss of one life when Putin is bombing you know, cities and ready to destroy a country of 40 million people, mm-hmm. uh, it does not seem like you know, that big a deal. David, I know that you have spent a lot of time researching and reporting on Navalny, um, and that you actually spent time with him in Russia all the way back to in, in 2011. I would love for you to just share a little bit about what, what your memories are of interacting with Navalny or your first impressions of, of meeting him. Well, I arrived in Russia as a correspondent for the New York Times in 2011, and that was the year that was really a breakout year for Navalny. Um, He was really coming into his own and transforming from an online blogger, that was really where his personality and presence was felt, uh, blogging against corruption, speaking out against, he was trained in, in law and finance, so he was perfectly positioned to take on state corruption and like to read the fine print of, you know, company reports, quarterly reports, figure out, you know, where money was disappearing in some of these giant uh, Russian state-owned corporations, and then would go to shareholder meetings, sometimes out in the middle of nowhere in, in Siberia, and stand up, you know, and I have a question, you know, which nobody expected uh, that he would do. But then in early 2011, uh, he went on a radio show and was asked about Putin's party, United Russia, what he thought of it. And Inadvertently, certainly this wasn't anything he'd planned, anything he had written out. He called it the party of crooks and thieves. Hmm. And that just went viral. It became a meme before we understood memes to be memes and captured something in the imagination of a Russian public that was increasingly frustrated by, you know, oligarchs who were growing hugely wealthy off of Russia's vast natural resources, even as it remained overwhelmingly a very poor country. And almost immediately after that, they're starting to be talking about Navalny as a potential presidential contender. I mean, this happens in a country where the only job that matters is president, right? And so beginning really that December, he was on stage at these rallies, what became the white ribbon protests of 2011 and 2012. And he leads them in this chant, you know, we have our voice and we exist. Yes, the crowd starts back, right? We exist. Um, and it continues from there. Um, you know, he tells them they hear our voice and they're scared. They can laugh in their zombie box. It's a way in Russian of referring to the kind of the television um, and, and really just fires them up. Uh, he knew how to captivate a crowd. He knew how to turn a phrase. My first recollection is of Navalny at those uh, protests. Uh, you know, this lanky, uh, tall, good-looking guy. Um, you know, there's no question we know in, in politics, you know, tall, good-looking men tend to do well. And Navalny fit the part. You know, over the weekend, I, I finally watched that documentary about Navalny that won the Oscar for Best Documentary Feature last year. And what really struck me, even as someone who felt like I kind of knew the the broad contours of his career and his kind of rise to to prominence in Russia, is how funny he is and how much humor and self-deprecating humor and mocking of the Russian oligarchy is like what has made him resonate with so many people. Can you just talk about that part of his personality? Yeah, just an innate communicator. I mean, there's no other way to describe it. I mean, just had a way of connecting with people and of being able to sort of put a finger on the pulse and, um, you know, and have these conversations and to be, you know, serious when the the moment required being serious, but at other times being hilariously funny. And, um, you know, sometimes, you know, just this dry 
dry humor. Uh, recalling one time when he was at a protest and he and a bunch of others were arrested, they're thrown in a police wagon and you know, he tweets out, we're in this wagon and he gives the number, you know, don't blow it up, just slash the tires. <laughs> you know, then you could just constant, you know, keeping it light, even at the darkest moments. He was sent to this um, terrible prison in the Arctic North, just above the, the Arctic Circle. He's been convicted now of extremism, which allows him to be put in the most brutal of Russian prison colonies. And then he disappears because transporting the prisoners there takes, you know, days and days and days, this long trek of a journey. And when he finally reemerges and he's finally back able to get messages online, he says, here I am, your new Santa Claus. You know, and, you know, just finding a way to keep a sense of humor, even at some of the darkest, darkest moments. Which is totally shocking when you consider what those dark moments have looked like for him. And I want to zoom in on the events of 2020 when he survived a serious attempt on his life, a poisoning with the nerve agent Novichok. Can you briefly tell us what happened there, how he figured out what had happened to him, and why this was such a pivotal moment for Alexei Navalny? Well, it was a pivotal moment because clearly the cat and mouse games that he'd been playing with the Kremlin and with Putin were over, and they decided the time had come to kill him. And he didn't know exactly what had happened to him. He was uh, on an airplane uh, flying back from Siberia to Moscow, headed home after making campaign stops. He was um, uh, helping to uh, candidates who were running in regional elections and was visiting cities throughout Siberia, pointing out, you know, real retail politics sort of stuff, you know, shoddy housing, needs on education or healthcare. And um, Navalny had made a habit of uh, going for a swim locally in, uh, in a local river or lake or somewhere, wherever he went. And it seems that while he was out for a swim, these state assassins went into his room and laced his underwear with poison. And the next day he gets on a plane and suddenly he's feeling awful, basically near collapse, goes into the to the bathroom to try to wash up, then realizes if he doesn't get out of the bathroom, he's probably going to collapse in there and nobody will be able to get to him. And he gets out there and, um, and tells one of the, the flight attendants that, He's been poisoned and lied down. He said, I thought he was going to die. Mm. Um, and he describes it as, you know, just all the life kind of being sucked out of him. Uh, there was an emergency landing. Uh, paramedics met the plane on the tarmac, realized this was too serious a case and got even better qualified paramedics. And they rushed him to a hospital where he was put into a medically induced coma and then became began a series of, you know, almost comic, surreal uh, only in Russia, events where his wife and one of his top uh, lieutenants, uh, Ivan Zhdanov, jumped on a plane and got out there to try to see him. And they won't even let his wife in the room in the hospital, telling her that she doesn't have proof that they're married. Mm. I mean, at this point, they're one of the famous, most famous couples in, in Russia, right? And even at that point then, Yulia Navalny had to make a personal appeal. There was advice that came to her from folks close to the Kremlin said, appeal to Putin personally to let Navalny go. And she did. Uh, she phrased it more as a demand than as an appeal, but she basically, you know, kissed the ring and asked Putin for permission to take her husband to Germany. And he was medevaced to Berlin, where he then learned, as he says, to, to walk and talk and mm -hmm. eat again and recovered. But as soon as he was recovered, he was insistent on going back to Russia. After the break, 
What happened after Navalny went back? Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. So, David, for me, and I'm sure for many people, that decision for Navalny to return to Russia, it didn't make sense. Knowing that an outcome like what we saw last week was likely to happen, that he would be arrested upon reentering the country and that he would spend the rest of his life in prison, why did he decide to go back? So this is where it's important to understand a few things about the core personality of of Alexei Navalny. And one of those is that he was a fighter. He was always a fighter. Even as a kid, he grew up in military towns. His dad was in the military and he'd get into fist fights and he never backed down, would never back down from a fight. And he was not going to back down from this fight with the Kremlin. But the other aspect of it was a much more profound one and it's tied up in Russian and Soviet history. And that is that he never wanted to be seen as a dissident. That word dissident in Russia carries a certain amount of baggage, especially from Soviet times, Mm. of almost failure. They were brave, and there were dissidents known as the Shesidistantniki, the Sixtiers. And I talked to his chief of staff, Leonid Volkov, about this for the book, that as brave as those people were, they never accomplished anything. But Navalny did not want to be seen as a dissident. He especially did not want to be seen as a dissident in exile. He wanted to be seen as a politician, as somebody who could connect with everyday Russians from one end of the vast country to the other, who could run an election if he was ever given the chance and win and defeat Putin. And so he believed that if he stayed out, he would be irrelevant, that his political career would be over. His wife tried to convince him and knew that she couldn't. So she basically uh, made the argument, look, just wait. Wait until you're fully recovered because, you know, maybe the next time we won't be able to get to you. We won't be able to save you. So please make sure that, that you're fully recovered. And, of course, we know she wasn't able to get to him and wasn't able to save him. So, David, acknowledging here again that Russian authorities have not taken credit for killing Navalny, that um, it is assumed, but we don't know 100 percent for sure that this was ordered by um, Putin. You know, given the the assumption that this was what was intended by the Russian government, what was the strategy here? Like, why kill Navalny when that makes him a martyr, makes him infamous? Well, there's a real question. 
you know, will he be a martyr and will he be able to succeed in death where, where he failed in life? Um, some of it is in the, in the sheer capriciousness of it, right? The idea that he's killed now because they can and because it seems like an unlikely moment, right? Why not do it at a moment when it seems that Russia's, you know, gaining in the, on the battlefield in Ukraine, when Putin is assured of victory in a, an election that's coming up next month, they've squashed any real challenge. And there are folks who have written about this, the, the capriciousness of a dictator, of an autocrat. Part of the, the fear, part of the power comes from being able to act at whim. Uh, there are other theories out there and reasons that Navalny was still a thorn in Putin's side, and there's no question he continued to be that. Even from prison. From prison, continued to speak out against the war. I mean, there's another question about whether after um, speaking out so forcefully against the war, which Navalny did, was his political career ever going to be viable again? And in, on the other side, you've got Putin and everybody within the power structures telling Russians that this is a war worth fighting for and sending their husbands and sons and brothers and boyfriends to die. And they're mm-hmm. dying by the thousands. Was Navalny really going to convince so many Russians that it wasn't worth it? That, in yeah. fact, this was all useless? And I think what you're describing really speaks to the question that I've been asking myself since he died, which is that um, it seems like part of what he intended to do in returning to Russia was provide this example of profound courage and inspire a resistance in Russia to push back against Putin. But I do wonder, like, three years after he went into prison— um, here we are, this, ending the second year of Russia's war against Ukraine, in which they are looking more and more like they're going to win. Um, like, is is the resistance against Putin stronger now than it was before? Or does was Navalny's return to Russia actually an end to um, the kind of internal pushback against uh, President Putin? Well, there's no question the, the opposition is not stronger. The opposition is, is crushed. Um, the opposition is now either in prison, exiled, or like Navalny, dead. Uh, there, there's no doubt about that. And this is where, again, another core aspect of, of Navalny in terms of who he was is that he was just quintessentially Russian. I mean, he loved Russia. He was a huge Russian patriot. And so Navalny had this idea in his head that he could be part of change in Russia that would come about through elections, through you know an evolutionary process, as opposed to potentially needing revolution from outside. And at this point, it does seem that if anything is going to change about Russia, it would have to come from outside, from the opposition that's in exile. Only, it would seem, if Russia is defeated in this war, which by no means is, is assured, even seems unlikely. But absent that... It's hard to see how what Navalny was hoping for would ever come about. And so, yeah, you're right that, you know, his return and his imprisonment was hastening a defeat of the opposition rather than, you know, in hindsight, I think he wished he would have stayed out. That given the war context, the best place for him to be would have been alive and safe and outside of Russia, hoping to present an alternative if and when the Putin regime ended. David, thank you so much for explaining all this. You're welcome.
David Herzenhorn is an editor for the International Desk at the Post. And again, his book is called The Dissident, Alexei Navalny, Profile of a Political Prisoner. On Tuesday afternoon, the Biden administration announced it is preparing a package of major sanctions on Russia in response to Navalny's death. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said the sanctions will cover, quote, sources of revenue for the Russian economy that power Russia's war machine, that power Russia's aggression, and that power Russia's repression. Before we go, here's a story that you might have missed over the long weekend. The Supreme Court in Alabama has ruled that frozen embryos are people. The question at the center of the case was whether a patient who mistakenly dropped and destroyed other couples' frozen embryos could be held liable in a wrongful death lawsuit. In a ruling on Friday, the court explained that they could be liable, and that, in the view of the court, state law says, quote, unborn children are children. Advocates say that this decision could threaten future access to in vitro fertilization, and it could also make it more difficult to access contraception in Alabama. You can catch up with this news and more when you subscribe to The Washington Post. To do that, go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon with help from Peter Bresnan. It was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lucy Perkins. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening.